The Book of Lamentations. That's not a good start. The Book of Lamentations, chapter 2. And Father, we do ask Your blessing on Your Word tonight. We know that as we open up the Bible that that You are doing something far beyond... uh, us just studying, reading words on a page, trying to retain knowledge. There's heart change that takes place here, Father, and it's so remarkable. The work of Your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord Jesus, for Your Spirit to teach us Your words and to uh, grow us, give us a, a deeper wisdom and understanding so that we can walk for You in this day, in this age, not, Father, longing that we might have lived in another time, but knowing that we are here now for this season. And Lord, we pray that as You feed us and grow us and mature us as followers, that it will influence and change the way we live our lives, that more people will see and know Jesus. That is our great desire, Father. And we long simply for the teaching of Your Word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And I remind my wife and children of this verse from time to time. Be angry and do not sin. (laughs) How tough is that? You know, the line between... Anger and sinning is so thin and it's so easy to cross. And I believe the key to anger without sin is very simple. It's righteousness. Not mine, not yours, but His. Because God has a righteous anger and He never sins. Jesus showed that righteous anger when He cleared the temple, twice at least. And He did not sin. We know that anger is an emotion, it's a response, it's a reaction, it's a passion. And it can lead us very quickly into sin, or if we walk in the righteousness of God, we can share what is sometimes a righteous anger. The Bible tells us in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And that's a key too, because a righteous anger has taken a long time to get there. Righteous anger is never flying off the handle. It's never losing control. It is passionate anger that is a slow boil that is built up over time and is informed by the righteousness of God. But don't think that just because God is slow to anger that He doesn't get angry. And we have seen it in our study through the book of Jeremiah. We have begun to realize it in the poetry of these five elegies in the book of lamentations, these five laments. In the fall of Jerusalem, God's anger was stirred up, kindled as a fire. Now we continue on with Jeremiah's lamentations, but the focus changes. The first lament expressed the desolation of the daughter of Zion. The second lament, and we're only going to deal with the one tonight, chapter 2, stresses the devastation of the father's anger. He is slow to anger, but man, when he gets there, get out of the way. Because it's intense. 
We move from the discipline now to the disciplinarian. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, and please hear this, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now if you are in His hands by grace... If you are, as Jesus said, in His grasp such that no one can tear you away, protected by His love, saved by His loving kindness, His compassion, wonderful. But you do not want to fall into the hands of the living God in terror and fear because of rebellion and rejection. And we have a whole history of God's interaction with mankind, with Israel in particular, to understand this and to learn from it. And to realize that God does not want to be angry with His children any more than any of you parents want to be angry with yours. I don't enjoy being angry with my kids. I didn't enjoy it yesterday when I walked in the room and David had the school picture, probably the most adorable school picture ever taken in the history of man. (laughs) David in a little kindergarten blue cap and gown for graduation. Adorable. I keep telling Cheryl, he puts the door in adorable. And he's got this picture folded in half. And now has a lovely crease right down the middle of his face. I don't enjoy getting angry with my kids. I'm like, what are you doing? And of course, then immediately the eyes well up with tears. I'm like, okay, but you bent the picture. And his eyes are still welling up. No parent wants to get, enjoys getting angry with a child. But the discipline is necessary. And God is angry with the Jewish people. And as the smoldering Jerusalem burns Jeremiah's eyes, he describes now how the wrath of God is stirred into an all-consuming fire, blazing up and burning. Words like wrath, fire, anger, used throughout this chapter. Anger is used in this chapter more than any other among the laments. Five different times the anger of God is referred to. Ironside says that city once famed as the dwelling place of the great king, was now a waste of blackened bruises. Throughout chapter 2, it is recognized that not an enemy from the outside acting of his own volition, but the Lord himself, who had so long dwelt in the midst of the city, had devoted it to destruction. God is angry. And that is the expression of this lamentation for us tonight. We're going to divide our study into three parts. The first ten verses are dealing with specifically the Father's anger. Verses 11 through 17 will be part two, the prophet's anguish. And finally it rounds out verses 18 through 22, the last five verses with the daughter's agony. So the Father's anger, the prophet's anguish, and the daughter's agony. Number one, the Father's anger. Lamentations 2 verse 1. Ah, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion, with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. And there in verse 1, anger spoken twice. Ah, how he has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. In an ironic twist of the history of Israel, the second elegy now begins with a cloud. The cloud of God's anger. It's ironic because originally the cloud that God provided for His people was not an angry cloud, it was a cloud that provided shelter. 
that provided covering from the desert sun, the desert heat. You realize the cloud by day and the fire by night that we read about, Exodus 13, 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This cloud wasn't just a puff of smoke. This cloud was a covering cloud. So that as the people marched through the wilderness, they had shade. They had protection from the heat of the sun. As long as they stayed under the cloud, as long as they stayed in the will and the direction of God, they were protected. At night, they had the fire which provided illumination. It provided warmth. It provided protection. It allowed them to see where they were going if they were traveling by night. Psalm 105.39, He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to illumine by night. Not the cloud of anger that now Jeremiah describes, but of glory. A cloud of of guidance. The Shekinah in the Hebrew. That Shekinah glory. We say Shekinah, it's easier for us in our language, but it's Shekinah. And that glory that that lit up the cloud, that, that burned in the night, that same glory of God now expresses His anger. 400 years after they came into the land, led by the cloud by day, the fire by night, the same glorious cloud actually came into the temple. That same glory of God, representing for the Jewish people His divine presence. It was dedication day. Solomon dedicating the newly built temple. The priest brought the Ark of the Covenant up from the city of David where it was being stored. And they brought it up, carrying it on poles as was required by the law. They learned from the whole cart incident, another story. Carrying it on poles, they brought it up to the Temple Mount. Up to the newly constructed, beautiful, massive Temple of Solomon. Considered one of the the glories of the ancient world. One of the seven wonders. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant in through the door, through the holy place, on into the Holy of Holies, setting it there on the poles, leaving the poles in it and moved away. And before they were even out of the temple, 1 Kings 8 verse 10 says, When the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They couldn't even stand being in there. It was so thick, so full, so heavy with the weight of God's glory. The cloud. But tragically now, Jeremiah laments that he has cast from heaven to earth Note this, the glory of Israel. Not only has He covered them with a cloud in His anger, but He's cast that glory from heaven to earth, their glory, Israel's glory, their hope. Notice though, it doesn't say that He casts the glory from earth to hell. It says He cast it from heaven to earth. Jerusalem is not like Capernaum. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, Jesus said, Luke 10.15, You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. One of the three cities that Jesus did most of His ministry in. And Capernaum, most of His miracles. You can visit Capernaum today. Some will. Lord willing, next March. You can see Capernaum, the, the ruins, what's left of it. But Jesus prophesied, You will be brought down to Hades. Why? Why Capernaum and and Bethsaida and Chorazin? Why these three cities? Why would He do that? Because those three cities, more than anywhere else on earth, saw the visual manifestation of God. They saw the power miracles of Jesus. The feeding of of 5,000. The healings 
the miracles, the amazing things, the supernatural power and might of God and Jesus, those three cities saw it more than anywhere else, vividly displayed before their very eyes, and they rejected Him. And so Jesus said, you're going to be thrust down, cast down, brought down to Hades. Jerusalem is cast down by the Lord from heaven to earth twice, 586 and 70 AD. But she was not thrust down into Hades. Why? Because there is still a hope for Jerusalem. There is still a hope for the people of Israel, a hope and a future. Luke 21-24 tells us, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Now that doesn't sound so hopeful. But the next word does. Until until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And as Spencer was just describing for us, it just tickles me to hear him talking about Israel. Because as he's describing for us right now the presence of the Jewish people in the land and the fact that they hold Jerusalem at all, we're beginning to see that the times of the Gentiles are very nearly fulfilled. This day is almost over. This age is nearing its end and rapidly, folks. But looking back at 586, the cloud of His anger, Jerusalem cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. And it also notice says He has not remembered His footstool. And in that verse, Jeremiah connects the cloud and the temple. He pulls them together. The cloud of His anger and the temple of the Lord. What do you mean? The footstool is the temple of God. The reference to the footstool here. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 2 says, King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I had made preparations to build it. Psalm 95 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Psalm 132, verse 7, Let us go into His dwelling place and let us worship at His footstool. And so for the Jewish people, in a very real way, the temple was the footstool of the Lord. The temple mount was the place where He would, as it were, rest His feet. And so they would go up to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. But the footstool itself, now Jeremiah, writing the second lamentation, looking across the valley there at what's left, at the decimation of the temple, sees that the footstool itself is ashes. The cloud of glory is now Jeremiah's picture of consuming, fiery judgment. And I believe it's the same source of cloud and fire. Cloud by day, fire by night, cloud of God's anger is the same cloud, is the same source God had not changed. In the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, God was no different than when He led the people through the wilderness. He was the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. We change. We're as changeable as the tides. Not God. He is consistent. He is ever faithful. God doesn't change. Mercy doesn't deny righteousness. Grace never deletes judgment. Don't be mistaken. Don't think, well, wait a minute, I have grace and I don't have judgment, so clearly grace deleted judgment. No, it didn't. Grace caused Jesus to take your judgment. Judgment was still poured out. 
wrath still happened. Our salvation is not free, gang. It was paid for by the highest price. The very blood of Jesus to the last drop paid that price. The fiery wrath consumed Jesus at the cross. Your salvation is not free. It was paid for. And so even where there's grace offered, judgment is still satisfied. God never changes. So the same God who showed grace in the wilderness, covering them with a cloud, now shows judgment with the cloud of His anger. He is consistent. He is the one and same God. Hebrews 10.26 says, If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know what that means? It means if you're sitting in here week in and week out, and you're learning the truth of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you still reject it, you still sin willfully, You still rebel against the Lord? He would say, you've had your chance. I spoke to you week after week after week. I poured my word out week after week after week. Did you hear me? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now that's harsh. It's a heavy word. But you know what? It is a word that pours out of a heart of love. Because God back then, and even tonight, is saying, I'm telling you now. I'm telling you, David, what will happen if you fold the replacement picture in half. (laughs) I'm giving you a fair warning because I love you, son. And I don't want to have to replace the window I have just thrown you through. Okay, that's harsh. I didn't actually say that to him. Please don't report me. (laughs) Hebrews 12.29 tells us our God is a consuming fire. So pay attention to that. Note the language, especially through the first ten verses, about the furious anger of God, which is compared throughout to a consuming fire. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up as a fire would swallow up. He has not spared all the habitations of Jacob. In His wrath He has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. Well, how do you bring down a stronghold? Fire. Burning to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger He has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back His right hand from before the enemy. And He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming round about. He has bent His bow... Like an enemy, he has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were present to the, pleasant to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire. Now, though God's actions were devastating, he is not Judah's enemy. Nor was God Judah's enemy in 586 as Jerusalem fell. He bent his bow and he set his right hand. But notice the language, like an enemy. As an adversary. Like. These words used to describe God did use Babylon. Prior to that, He had used Assyria. The result, the outcome felt like the attack of an enemy. But God was not their enemy. Keep that in mind. He is not eternally set against them. Verse 5, continuing, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. 
and he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. That word tabernacle there is suk, which the word it comes from is sukkah. The sukkah, the sukkot is the feast of tabernacles. And the whole idea there, he's violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. The picture there is a farmer who goes out and builds a little temporary souk, a little shelter so he has shade during the harvest time. But when the harvest is over, he just tears it down. And so Jeremiah is saying, as simply as that, God has torn down Judah. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. Boy, on the feast days, the trumpets would blare. The shofar would sound. Shofar as it needed to, it would blow. The people would hear it from miles around and they would come a-run and they would come up to Jerusalem for the feast. Glorious, wonderful sound of that trumpet blast. But the trumpet blast also came as a warning. And in this circumstance, the sound was not of joy and feasting. The sound was a blast of danger. The Lord determined, verse 8, to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a line. That's, that's an interesting phrase there. He stretched out a line indicating, typically he stretched out a line when you were building something. But here Jeremiah uses it to say God was very specific and precise in His destruction. Stretching out a line to plan for, okay, this wall is coming down. Okay, that wall is coming down. Precision in destruction. He has not restrained His hand from destroying. And He has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Note at the look at the the fiery anger of the Lord. Look at what He has consumed back in verse two: habitations, strongholds, the kingdom, its princes. In verse five, the fire has consumed the palaces. In verse six, the temple, the king, the priests. In verse seven, His altar, His sanctuary, His palace walls. In verses eight and nine, the city wall itself. And the gates and the king and the princes and the prophets who sat in the gates for judgment. And all of this description here, and what what the Lord is pointing out through Jeremiah, is these are all the things in Judah that the people trusted. Oh, the wall around the city is permanent. That'll always be there. The temple, the temple, the temple. Remember they said that three times. The temple of the Lord! It'll always be here. We're protected. The king will sit on his throne. The priests will be there. The prophets. My house. It's all there. This false sense of permanence. And now all of these things are completely consumed by the fiery anger of the Lord. Everything's gone. And I read that and I thought, wow, what a microcosm of our world. The destruction of Judah is a microcosm of a far greater destruction that is promised, 2 Peter 3.7, by His Word. 
The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. By His Word. That day is coming. So let me ask you, what permanent structures are you trusting? What are you putting your faith in to get you through? What habitations? What strongholds? What churches? Or bards? What princes or presidents or pastors? Impermanent. Impermanent. How about the law of the land? Can we trust that? I mean, hey, our Constitution, right? Our Constitution is going through convulsions right now. If you're watching the news and paying attention, it is under threat. Something that, boy, in a previous day or my earlier years, I would have thought, that'll always be there. In fact, I think most of us as kids thought, America will always be this way. It'll always be here. Mom and Dad, they'll always be here. The house will be here. Remember how freaked out I was when my dad sold the red Volkswagen Bug. It's not going to be here anymore, Dad? I mean, I was used to every day walking home from school and there was the Bug sitting in the driveway. It was gone. We look around and we really trust in the permanence of things in this world. And the Word is very clear. None of it's permanent. None of it's going to last. The Jews trusted their constitution, by the way. They trusted their law and it failed them miserably. Not because the law was a failure, but because they failed to keep it. It's kind of like our Constitution. You know what? The things we're seeing happen in our country right now are not because the Constitution is a failure. It's because the people are failing to keep the Constitution, which, by the way, as you know, was built on biblical principles. Ten Commandment values. Judeo-Christian ethics and morals. And you strip that away, and it loses its guts. But they trusted in the law. Look at that in verse 9. It says, the law is no more. What exactly does that mean? The temple's gone. And without the temple, the law is useless. Without the temple, the law means nothing. And I would say this to our Jewish friends today. The Hasidic Jews who are so enamored with those 613 commandments... And they are useless without the sacrificial system. Because only by the sacrificial system does God give mercy for the mess made with the rest of the law. For the inability to keep both the letter of the law and also the spirit of the law. Can't keep it without the sacrificial system. By the way, what what covered the sins of the people when they were in Babylon? Ever stop and think about that? The temple is destroyed. For 70 years, they lived in Babylon. No temple, no sacrifices to God, no Yom Kippur. And then they went back and it still took some time to build the second temple. What about that entire span of time? Where in the world did their forgiveness come from? Where did the mercy of the Lord come from? They didn't have the law. Just good deeds wasn't enough. So what covered them? Graced it. God's grace. And by the way, those 70 years are an amazing proof that it was not the religious keeping of the law that God wanted. It was the keeping of a relationship. We see men like Daniel, who was beloved of the Lord. Men like Ezekiel, 
the great prophet. And these guys didn't have sacrifices to cover them, but they had faith. And like Abraham before the law, these men without the law during those 70 years had faith in the Lord, relationship with God, and I believe God then would credit that to them as righteousness. Their belief. Their trust. Same for us today. It's not our religion. It's our relationship with Jesus. And it's trusting in Him and believing in Him. Romans 3.25 says, In the forbearance... By the way, forbearance, I believe, is just another word for grace. In the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Just when God should be completely done with us, He sees Jesus on the cross and once more says, Forgiven. And that's grace. There's another word for forbearance as well, and that is faithfulness. And keep this in mind, but there is an undercurrent that runs through this entire lament. You're not going to see the word, but it is here, and it is the word faithfulness. Faithfulness. God may be angry, and He may discipline, and He may scourge and punish and strike, but He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Faithfulness is not what He does. Faithfulness is who He is. He cannot deny His own character, His own nature. And speaking of faithfulness, note the very beginning of verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. I love referring to this verse. Heads up, Israel travelers, I will refer to this verse when we sit on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kedron Valley at the Temple Mount. I love this. We look across at the eastern gate of the temple structure, of the wall there. You can see that eastern gate. And I love to read this and point it out. Her gates have sunk into the ground because both in 586 B.C. and in A.D. 70, the gates of Jerusalem literally sunk into the ground. They were destroyed. And Jerusalem was then built over. That's what... That's what other countries did. They came in, they destroyed the city, they raised it to the ground, and then they built on top of it. And so the gates literally were sunk into the ground. In 1538, you Bible students, you history majors may know this, Suleiman the Magnificent, that Ottoman Turk uh, Muslim conqueror, had the Jerusalem wall rebuilt with the current eastern gate. So when you look at the eastern gate now, it's the eastern gate that Suleiman built. But it's not a real gate, it's just a facade. It doesn't open, it doesn't close, it just has the facade there where the eastern gate should be. The actual gate is there, about 15 feet underground, immediately below where the current eastern gate is. Well, how do we know that? In 1969, James Fleming, an archaeologist, was digging around there after a rainy spell, The ground was soft and suddenly gave way and he found himself standing knee-deep in bones and looked up and saw the ark of the eastern gate. Well, as soon as the Ottoman Turks discovered this, well, no, they wouldn't have been there in 1969, would they? As soon as the Muslims discovered this, they quickly cemented over the top of it and built up a Muslim cemetery right in front of the eastern gate. But it's there. 
and Fleming wrote about it in Biblical Archaeological Review, I believe it was the 1981, um, one of the issues in 81. Ezekiel 43 and 44 tells us something. It tells us, and we'll see this when we get into Ezekiel, that's going to blow your mind. When Messiah comes, He will go through the eastern gate. He will enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. So you look at that and think, okay, but the eastern gate is a facade. How is He going to walk through the eastern gate? Now, He could blow it open. But I think He's going to walk through the original eastern gate. Well, how does that work? It's it's sunken to the ground. Revelation tells us no less than five times there will be massive earthquakes in the tribulation. That will cause incredible topographical changes in the land. Zechariah 14.10 says all the land will be changed into a plain from Gibeah to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. And Psalm 24.7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And I think that's more than a song. I think that's prophecy. And we will see it happen. And what's remarkable about that is here in the middle, her gates have sunk into the ground and in the middle of this expression of God's anger and His fury and His all-consuming fire, there is His faithfulness. I've, I've had to tell my kids in the past, hey, just because Daddy is angry doesn't mean He stopped loving you. You know, when I've had to discipline my children, Cheryl and I always make it a point to take our kids... Not perfect parents by any stretch, but but to take our kids after punishment up on a knee and hug them and remind them how much we love them. That a parent can become angry, that a parent can discipline, and yet still have his children's best in mind, still love his little ones. Well, that's the father's anger. And it caused a literal gut-level visceral response to the prophet. Number two, the prophet's anguish Verse 11, My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. Now you might want to note this. The word spirit where he says my spirit is greatly troubled is not ruach, the typical Hebrew word translated spirit. No, it's me'ah, which is the Hebrew word for bowels. My bowels are troubled. Now, when I'm reaching for a Prilosec, I'm not saying that my spirit's troubled. See, my bowels are a little ticked off right now. They're hurting. The word for heart there is literally kabed, not leb. Leb is the Hebrew word for heart. It's the word kabed, which means liver. So, literally translated, Jeremiah says, My eyes fail because of tears. My bowels are greatly troubled and my liver is poured out on the earth. Now that's graphic, but what's he saying? He's saying, I am sick over this. I am having physical pain because of what my eyes are seeing. I read that and I thought, do I ever have that kind of physical pain over sin? Do I look around at the world around us? Does your gut ever ache? for what you see? Do you ever have that kind of literal visceral reaction? I think we should. I think we should far more than we do. Jeremiah had a painful, sickening, physical reaction to Judah's judgment because he was engaged 
with His people. Because He loved Judah. Because He loved His fellow Jews. He loved those who were in captivity. He loved those who were up at Ramah getting ready to go. He loved those who were slaughtered throughout the streets of Jerusalem. And He saw all of this and it made Him sick. These people mattered to Him. Isaiah knew that. Isaiah felt the same way. He said in Isaiah 24.16, From the ends of the earth we hear songs, Glory to the righteous one. But I say, Woe to me! Woe to me! Alas for me! For the treacherous deal treacherously. The treacherous deal very treacherously. He says, Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. It tore him up to consider the sin in the world around him. Isaiah. Man, who cares about treacherous people? Isaiah does. And what about Jesus? Isaiah referred to him in Isaiah 53 verse 3 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Luke 19.41, as we talked about, I believe, last week, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. In the same way that Jeremiah now is lamenting Jerusalem, Jesus would weep over Jerusalem, perhaps from the same location be it the Mount of Olives or Golgotha. But Jesus wept as Jeremiah wept. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? John says, in Him was life. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, life in and of Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was more alive, is more alive, than anybody who's ever lived. And yet he's also a man of sorrows. Well, how does that work? It's because he loves so much. It's because Jesus is so engaged with the people of this sin-sick world. And I guarantee you, Jesus gets stomach aches over the lost in this world. And we ought to as well. Verse 12, they say to their mothers, where is God? grain and wine as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And Jeremiah says, How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And every question here assumes a negative answer. Who can heal you? No one. To what shall I compare what I'm seeing here? Nothing. Nothing compares. How shall I admonish you? How how can I counsel you? How can I encourage you? I can't. I got no words, Jeremiah says. And as far as their healing goes, well, back in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 12, thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable. Your injury is serious. And so Jeremiah laments saying, there's nothing I can say. I've got no words for you here. I found it interesting that he referred to them as the virgin daughter of Zion. Virgin? Really? So I did a little digging and learned that it is not, O daughter of Jerusalem and O virgin daughter of Zion. It's literally, O daughter Jerusalem. O virgin daughter Zion. It's not the people. It's the city itself. 
the words of lament here. Now, Jeremiah laments his people. Make no mistake about it. And throughout, he, his heart breaks for his people. But right now, his heart's breaking for the city. For Jerusalem. Have you ever felt that way about a city? You know, I feel that way when I see Jerusalem. Now. I'll never forget the first time. I think I've shared before. You come out underneath the, the tunnel, under the, the Mount of Olives, and as you come out, you look out there, and it, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's like, there it is. It's real. It's there. It's not on a flannel graph or a PowerPoint presentation. It's actual. By the way, we have some seats available for the, for the Israel tour if you're interested. Talk to me afterward. But in this moment, the city itself is beloved. It is similar to the exile who wrote in Psalm 137, verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, something about the city that that evokes this kind of emotional outpouring. Verse 14, he writes, Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty, a joy to all the earth? See, that was Jerusalem's reputation. All the way back to Solomon's day, the surrounding nations knew of Jerusalem as stunningly beautiful. Even calling it the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. But now, they deride, they hiss, they shake. Deuteronomy 28 verse 37 said they would. It's an interesting parallel to the hissing and shaking of heads and clapping of hands against Jesus, the scorn and mocking that He took at Calvary. And all your enemies, verse 16, have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we've swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. Oh, the enemies of Zion gloat over her agony and misfortune. They scorn her sorrow and they mock her mourning. They're saying, so much for the holy city. Ha! So much for the beautiful virgin of Zion. So much for you Jews. And we hear the same types of things said about the church today in increasing volume. People jump on every possible wrong that they can see happening in the church. Jerusalem goes down, the Jews go into captivity, and the enemies round about just clap their hands and shout for joy. One pastor falls in a public way, and isn't it amazing how people come out of the woodwork to shout and gloat and scorn the church? One church goes a weird direction, and people, the press, are all over it. You want to put the Bridge Christian Fellowship on the map? All i got to do is mess up, and the press will be on it. Trust me. Not planning to mess up, but just saying. Sometimes I wonder about the angelic PR department. You know what I'm talking about? Lord, the angels who are in charge of you know public relations for the church, 
not doing such a great job. Because every time something goes wrong, rather than keeping it quiet, it's bandied about for the world to see. Have you noticed that? And sometimes it's embarrassing. You go, oh, not another one. Here we go again. And I wonder, Lord, why do you allow our flaws to become so visible for the world? Why is it so open that our enemies can claim victory over us? Notice that in verse 16. They say, middle of the verse, we have swallowed her up. They're gloating. We won. We took her out. We did this. And there are people who say that about the church today when the church goes down. Oh, yeah. We knew it would happen. Why does God allow such public humiliation of Christians? Can I ask that question? No one's, you, know, you guys are sitting in the front row, but everybody's moving back. We're supposed but, to keep our eyes on Jesus, not on humans. Absolutely. Spencer's back. <laughs> no, that's right. But I still wonder this, though. Why does God allow it? Why does God allow the world to see when we fail? And not just see, but sometimes it almost feels like it's highlighted. I'll tell you why. Look at verse 17. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His word, which He commanded from days of old. This is not new news for God. He has thrown down without sparing. He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. It's all the Lord. Babylon, you're just the paddle. Assyria was just the switch. They're just the device of the punishment. They have no power to pull it off. Only God. And God has performed and done all of these things. But listen, there's something that the enemies of Israel and the church still have never understood. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Hebrews 12, verse 6. The Hebrew writer goes on in verse 7 and says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I remember as a kid, my dad had this way of when he was upset with me because I had done something, and trust me, I did a lot. So there were often times, if my friends were over in the house, he had a pattern so as not to embarrass me of calling me out of the room. He would poke his head in. We'd be all watching TV, hanging out together, and he'd poke his head in and say, "Um, Rick, can I see you in the kitchen for a minute? And I'd slink out of the room with all my friends going, Dude, you're busted. And they all knew. They all knew my dad's pattern. If I did something wrong, I was called out. And I go, Dad, just wait till they go home. And then you're going to beat the snot out of me. But don't do it. Don't call me out. And it was embarrassing for me. And he would call me out. You know what? What father doesn't discipline his son? I had to grow up and learn that. He says, if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are, listen, illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. So listen to this. Why the scandalous discipline of Judah before the whole world? Why the sometimes embarrassing fallout for the church in front of everybody in the world? Why does the world see this when it takes place? 
And it's all because there is something bigger than the anger of the Lord, and that is the love of the Father. The Father who says, you know what, they can say whatever they want. I am going to discipline you because you need discipline. And there's something else. Love dictates discipline. Anger rises out of intense, passionate love. He refuses to let his children run rebelliously, to run wild. So he deals with this. But something else that is perhaps surprising, this is something the non-believer misses out on. The world is not chastened. The world is not disciplined by the Lord. Oh, The world suffers consequence for sin... Because there's a spiritual law. If you sin, there's going to be fallout. Your sin will find you out. So everybody has to deal with that. You know? If I got, get all, if I, if I get heavy into drinking, the fallout, probably become an alcoholic. If I just get drunk one night, the fallout, next morning, <laughs> spilling my liver on the ground, you know? There's fallout and consequence, but it's, it's a consequence of sin. And if you've ever, like, like Job mentions, like several of the prophets, if you ever look around the world and go, so how come Brad Pitt has it so good? Why is Elton John still kicking? I've said this one before. Why are any of the Rolling Stones still alive? I don't get it. <laughs> no, they can't. Keith Richards, for crying out loud. And you look at these people and you go, I mean, they, they suffered some for their sin, but, but they're not. I've seen Christians suffer more than Keith Richards. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. The Lord disciplines His legitimate children. The illegitimate children don't get the discipline of the Lord. They scoot by. Well, that's not fair. How fair is it? Listen, this life is the only chance they get. This life is the only good that they will ever experience. But the Lord looks at you, looks at me, and He says, You know, you've chosen me. And we have. John 1.12 says, We've received Him, we've believed on His name, and therefore we have become children of God. That's how you become a legitimate child of God. You receive Him and you believe in His name. And so having done that, he looks at us and he says, Okay, kids, now you're my kids. You believe in me, you trust me, I'm going to discipline you. And it may not seem fair, and it may be painful, and you may look at your own life and say, Why this? Why now? Why not? And all the while God's saying, I love you so much that I am disciplining you now for later. I am preparing you for your eternity It's going to be marvelous. But you need the discipline of the Lord until then. Preparation for eternity. Where there is no godly discipline taking place, there is no future hope. And that's the difference. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. So poetically now we come to the third part. Jeremiah records the people's tearful lament. Now we hear from the daughter, this is number three, the daughter's agony. Verse 18. Their heart 
cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him. For the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? Pause right there for a moment. We talked about this last week. This is one of the most horrific results of the siege of Jerusalem. And that is, and I'll put it this way, maternal cannibalism. And Jeremiah is writing this. It's unthinkable that a mother could actually feed on her newborn. Should women eat their offspring, that word offspring is literally their fruit, the fruit of their bodies. The little ones who are born healthy, the phrase born healthy is a single word in the Hebrew, it's tifuchim. Tipuchim is only used here in the whole Bible. It's used one time. And this word, it means, and I had to look up the word in the English even, because the English word is to dandle. What does that mean? It means to carry on the palm. The description here, tipuchim, indicates something small enough to carry on the palm. A tiny little thing, vulnerable, Small. And you read this and you got to ask the question, can a nation sink so low that a mother's life trumps the life of her baby? Latter part of the verse, I'll just let that one sit because you know the answer. Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? That was literal. In the temporal courts, priests were slain. Prophets lost their lives in the sanctuary. But I read that and I couldn't help but feel like we've been watching a systematic slaying of the speaking of the word for a while now in our country. Prophets and priests silenced. Oh, maybe not killed, but certainly gutted from speaking the word. Jim sent me the article. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Oak Harbor City Council right now is, has a uh, debate on the table as to whether or not the name of Jesus should be allowed in invocations at council meetings. <laughs> to be able to say, I mean, it's okay to pray to deity, but you can't be specific. That's the debate that they're actually having. That the mayor brought on to the table, the same mayor who two weeks ago was at the National Day of Prayer lauding all the Christians gathered there to pray. We need your prayers. And I, Really? Prayers to who? Because you can't use the name Jesus. Now that hasn't been proclaimed as Island County law or rule yet, but it's up for debate. Because a member of the Whidbey Island Free Thinkers objected to the name of Jesus being invoked. Isn't that ironic? Now, if you're a free thinker, shouldn't I be able to say whatever I want? Freely? Wild. By the way, for the Whidbey Island free thinkers, I think I'm just going to copy off Philippians 2, 10, and 11 just mail it to them. 
At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you can call yourself a free thinker all you want, but you will confess the name of Jesus. You you get that? Every single one of us in here tonight, we will confess the name of Jesus as Lord, as King. And you might say, well, not me. Oh, you will. You will. You're either going to confess it now in faith and enter into that glorious relationship with Jesus, or you're going to confess it then in abject fear. You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing. At the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. You know what concerns me even more? Is the slaying and the silencing of priest and prophet in the sanctuary. That is, those who would dictate what can and cannot be spoken in the church pulpit, or in our case, music stand. Those who are trying to dictate what is allowable for a pastor to speak related to the Word of God. And in a very real way, they are trying to slay the speaking of truth. Rick, you're sounding so paranoid. You know what? If those who would have it this way succeed in bringing about laws of hate speech in our country that disallow me from preaching just what's on the page in Scripture, it will not be the fault of the enemies of God. Because just as abortion happens when life is no longer held sacred, silence fills the church sanctuary in which the word is no longer spoken. And if churches decide we don't really need to teach the Bible, as so many unfortunately have, then the Lord promises a day is coming when the Bible will not be available to you anymore. When you will not be able to speak it, even should you want to. Amos 8.11, he said, Behold, days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea, or we could say people will stagger from sea to shining sea, and from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. You see, you don't have to kill off a prophet or a priest or a pastor to silence the teaching of the word. All you have to do is refuse it. And if we refuse the word, we will lose the word. Verse 21. Rick, it's heavy tonight. It's lamentations. Verse 21. On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. You have called as in the day of an appointed feast my terrors on every side. And there is no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy annihilated them. The lament ends twice referring to the day of the Lord's anger. And again, realize this, the enemy may be the tool of annihilation, but make no mistake, the devastation of Jerusalem was the result of the anger of God. That anger that Psalm 145 verse 8 tells us, paralleling Psalm 103 verse 8, 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. And so it would take 900 years from the people coming into the land to the fall of Jerusalem for God finally to judge the people. 900 years. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus died at Calvary. Why hasn't He come? Why hasn't He returned? Because the Lord is patient. He is slow to anger. But His anger is coming and the day of the Lord's anger will arrive. Through all of this, the undercurrent of the devastation of Jerusalem, the undercurrent of the anger of the Lord is faithfulness. Let me just tell you a quick story. After the destruction of the second Jewish temple in A.D. 70, a group of rabbis accompanied a a famous rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was called in the Talmud the head of all the sages. And so he led a group of rabbis up to Jerusalem after A.D. 70, When they reached the Temple Mount, a fox darted out from the spot where the Holy of Holies had stood, where the Temple once stood, and all the rabbis began to weep, except Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva began to laugh out loud. And and the rabbis, they said to him, Akiva, why are you crying? Why are we crying and you laugh? And the rabbi answered, And you, why are you crying? The rabbis responded, What? Shall we not weep? Indeed, this is a fulfillment of the verse. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl over it. Lamentations 5, verse 18. That is exactly why I laugh, Akiva answered. For just as we have seen the prophecies of Jerusalem's destruction come to pass, so too we know that the prophecies of her future consolation shall also be fulfilled. The very fall of Jerusalem speaks of the faithfulness of God. The very meeting out of His justice and judgment on His own people speaks of the fact that He is coming again. He is going to judge the entire world. And He's coming to save those who would believe in Him. He is absolutely faithful. Paul S. Reese once said, You will never understand the faithfulness of God by taking the short route. So even through the fiery anger of the Lord, we see faithfulness. Let's bow. Holy Father, faithful and true are Your words. Faithful is Your character and Your nature. And God, I I thank You with all that I am that You poured out all of that anger and wrath on Jesus at the cross. I am so thankful You spent Your righteous anger on Him. Jesus, that You would take my place to receive all of the punishment that I so deserve. I praise You, Lord, for Your faithfulness in fulfilling everything that You said. In all the prophecies. We saw last week, Lord, the prophecies throughout Deuteronomy 28, each fulfilled in the falling of Jerusalem so so far after. And Father, I pray that You will remind us now of Your faithfulness. Lord, may that Word just take us through this week. May we learn of Your faithfulness. Live by Your faithfulness.
and become faithful like You, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just... I need to tell you just one more thing having to do with the faithfulness of God and specifically related to marriage. Right now I'm dealing with a a good friend um, not in the area, a friend who's out of state, who I just discovered this last week is considering leaving his wife. I have another person that I'm very close to who whose marriage is just fallen apart. Uh, from time to time, we deal with marriages within within the Bridge Fellowship that are struggling and hurting and, and just going through it. And I just need to say to you all, I believe that God gave us marriage for more than simply that man should not be alone. I believe that marriage, one of the key reasons we have it, is so that we can learn what it means to walk in faithfulness. See, faithfulness isn't always an emotional thing. Faithfulness doesn't always feel good. Faithfulness is not always, oh, I get that tickly feeling every time she walks in the room. There are times I'm just ticked off at my wife. (laughs) Don't tell her that. She knows. And there are times she is just put out with me. And we walk this road of marriage and what our culture has done is said, don't like it, get out. And what the Lord says is, I want you to learn what faithfulness means. It's not always pretty. It is certainly not the easiest thing. Faithfulness. And I want to encourage each of you, in the the current state that you are in, I'm not talking about previous marriages and failures and mistakes that we've all made. We've all sinned. Every one of us. There's nobody above that. I'm not down on people who have gone through divorce. I don't have to be. You've probably been down on yourself. You've probably had enough angst and pain and difficulty from that. But the issue before us is walking the way Jesus wants us to walk. And one of the best places to learn that, and if you're in a tough spot right now in a marriage, understand one of the best things that can happen is to stay in the marriage and learn faithfulness. And you may not like her right now, and she may not like you, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, learn faithfulness. And I just want to pray that over our body. Father, I I ask that you will teach us what it means to be faithful. This whole... American concept of falling out of love that is so pathetic. Because love is not how we feel. Love is what we've decided. And I pray that you will teach us to be faithful to our spouses. Lord, as you have been faithful to us. That you do not give up on us. That you don't back out. And I ask for the faithfulness of the Lord to penetrate our very lives, our behavior, that we would learn from these things. Father, for those who have been through the pain of divorce, I pray your comfort and your consolation, and I pray the recognition of your great and glorious forgiveness and grace. And I just ask that now, from this day forward, that we all, Lord, would learn what it means to walk in faithfulness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
You don't have to pay for that. That was a, a bonus tonight. <laughs>